Welcome to the Still Navigating podcast, familiar and unusual stories from a new perspective. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Still Navigating podcast. I'm a bit of a a numbers nerd. I when I hear a number on the radio or read it or see it on telly, I often want to know more. Um, I want to know some context. I want to I want to compare that number with another number. And this week we're going to look in a bit more depth at four different numbers. I'm going to give them a bit of a personal spin and see whether by giving them context, by comparing one number with another number, by challenging a number that's become sort of totemic, and by using a number that's perhaps different from what we'd expect, can we shed new light on a really fundamental problem that we're facing? But first of all, let's start by going to Gaza. And the number here is 69,000 litres. Some numbers stand on their own without the need for any context. Inflation in Argentina hit 143% in October. Wow. Kevin De Bruyne, Manchester City midfielder, earns £400,000 a week. Again, wow, but kind of that's not so surprising. 69,000 litres is the amount of fuel the Israeli Defence Force, the IDF, allowed into Gaza from Egypt through the Rafah crossing on Monday, November the 4th. Compared with our reference point that we're all used to of a 50-litre tank of petrol, it sounds like quite a lot in one day. But then if you factor in the 2.3 million people who live in the Gaza Strip and that the population is largely dependent on imported fuel to power generators, heat bread ovens, pump water from wells and keep emergency vehicles on the road, maybe it isn't that much. Then consider that the single fuel tanker holds between 15,000 and 20,000 litres. That on an average day... A UK petrol station sells 17,960 litres of petrol and diesel. And at 120 million litres of fuel are sold every day in the UK. 69,000 litres doesn't sound so much. Context really can be important. Let's go to the UK, more specifically England. And a number that has been a target for a long, long time, and that number is 300,000 homes. Another number caught my eye this week. It was in The Economist, and what particularly piqued my interest wasn't just the number, but the historical context it was presented in. Nerdy, I know, but I went back into the Office of National Statistics ONS data and took a look for myself. The number in question is the 300,000 annual target for new home completions in England. This has become a bit of a political tablet of stone, or should that be millstone, as as both the government and Labour opposition have signed up to it. Labour have actually said they would build 1.5 million homes over five years, which gives them some early wiggle room. The problem is that we haven't built 300,000 new homes in any year since 2000. And here I'm going to test your patience because 
in the blog, stillnavigating.com, there's a graph. So I'm going to have to talk you through a graph. But this graph shows that it shows um, England housing completions for every year from 2000. It's got the target of 300,000 as a dotted line across the top. And each year is represented by a vertical column. And you can see that the closest we've come is 178,000 in 2022. So what did I look further back? Have we ever built 300,000 new homes in England in one year? And the answer is that yes, we have, but only six times in the last 75 years. And the last time was in 1969. Again, if you go to stillnavigating.com, you can see it. Same graph as before. The vertical blue lines represent completions in each year for the last 70 years. And there's a red dotted line showing the target. And there's an awful lot of white space where we just haven't achieved that target. Looking from explanations of what looks to be a structural shortfall, you have to start with the right to buy. Arguably the defining policy of Thatcher, it became law in October 1980. Before 1980, completions had been on a steady decline. After 1980, they fell off a cliff, as local authority completions declined from an average of around 111,000 between 1960 and 1980 to 16,000 between 1980 and 2000. Any hope that housing associations would pick up the slack hasn't materialised. A sclerotic planning system, rampant nimbyism, land bank, hoarding by developers are well documented as big factors behind this broken market, as well as the ending of, 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 house, of council house construction. BICS, which is the, the, the data arm of RICS, the Royal Chartered Institute of Surveyors, have highlighted some other supply chain problems. They point out an anomaly in the market. As house builders' share price goes up if they have undeveloped land, it goes down if they have unsold houses. It's kind of a Goldilocks syndrome. If demand is too high, house builders complain they can't find bricklayers or materials. If demand is weak and prices are falling like now, they don't want to sell into a falling market. Ricks also point out another interesting thing, that smaller house builders seem to be getting squeezed out. 40 years ago, almost 40% of new homes were built by small builders. Today, today the proportion is just 12%. Small house builders can't afford to sit on their land banks. And as non-listed companies, they aren't subject to short-term share price pressure. So Ricks think helping revive the small, medium house building sector might help. Let's get back to where we started this, the data. Take the long view of that 300,000 target. And it's clear that the policy of arm twisting and ass kicking on local authorities and house builders isn't going to be enough. If you believe we need 300,000 new homes per year, and that is another subject, then the case for some sort of direct government intervention in the market seems overwhelming. I'm really taking my life into my hands here, and I'm going to talk next about climate change. And the number is 115 centimetres. But don't worry, this isn't a climate change denial piece. I'm talking about refreshing how we communicate the impact of climate change. The way we define our climate change call to action is quite abstract in some ways. 
It's the increase in average global temperature by a certain date compared to an arbitrary point in time. The 2015 Paris UN Climate Change Conference COP21 expressed it like this. To reduce global greenhouse emissions to hold global temperature increase to well below 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels and pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5 degrees centigrade. As we're already at 1.1 degrees centigrade increase, to keep below 1.5 degrees centigrade, the Paris Agreement has called for a 45% reduction in emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050. So despite or maybe even because of our familiarity or even over-familiarity with these targets, we're going to miss them. So I was interested to read about an alternative way of expressing the threat that climate change poses in an eye-opening new book about migration, Nomad Century, by Gaia Vince. We express climate change kinetically, of course, in degrees centigrade, temporally, by comparing to pre-industrial levels, and as an average, when we know that some regions are already experiencing climate change well above the 2 degrees centigrade ceiling. Because Gaia Vince's book is about how humans have always migrated in response to threats and opportunities, she talks about climate change spatially, or to put it another way, in terms of its velocity. As she says, climate niches are moving polewards, i.e. towards the poles, at a pace of 115 centimetres per day. It needs a bit of explanation. A climate niche is a geographic zone where historically the climate was most favourable and the land was most fertile. But these niches are changing rapidly. As Vince puts it, many people today live in places that are particularly vulnerable to environmental catastrophe, overcrowding and poverty. The velocity of climate change concept becomes more powerful when you link it to another fascinating way of seeing familiar data in a different way. World population by lines of latitude. The world's population is astonishingly clustered along the 27th parallel north, that line of latitude. This runs through Algeria, Egypt, Iran, Pakistan, northern India, southeast China, Mexico, Texas and Florida. Quite a route and some very densely populated countries. There's a guy called Alistair Ray, who is what he calls himself a a radical cartographer. And he's got a great blog that has fantastic data and graphics on this. You can get it on stillnavigating.com. The top 10 lines of latitude by population, and he lists them, are all between 22 and 36 degrees north. That's north of the equator and together they contain an estimated 2.3 billion. What is a line of latitude? A line of latitude represents 60 nautical miles, or 111 kilometres. So if you take the most populous band of latitude, it's the 400 kilometre wide band from 24 to 28 degrees north. It contains a billion people. And remember that the entire width of the Pacific and Atlantic are crossed by this band between 24 and 28 degrees north. 70% of its route is over water. So getting back to climate change velocity, 115 centimetres per day is an average. Some regions are moving northwards more quickly. But it only equates 
to 0.42 kilometers per year. And that's the problem. 42 kilometers per hundred years, which is what that translates to, is just one degree of latitude every 250 years. Although we're talking about the impact on billions of people and domestic and wild animals, it just isn't a compelling number, at least not yet. My point is that although more work is obviously needed, refreshing the way we express climate change can keep activists focused and enrol a whole new cohort to the cause. And finally, in this numbers journey, let's compare two numbers, 18,000 mortgage brokers and 27,558 family doctors. That's GPs. I caught the end of an interview with Richard Fearon, Chief Executive of the Leeds Building Society on BBC Radio 4's Today programme this week. Something he said really stuck in my mind. The mortgage market seems to have suddenly turned a corner with two-year fixed-rate mortgages down by as much as 1% in a week. Despite this, Fearon made the point that affordability for first-time buyers is the worst it's been in the society's 149-year history. And he recommended that to get the best deal, or for some to get any deal at all, people should use a mortgage broker. There are 18,000 mortgage brokers in the UK. Wow, that seems a lot, so I mentally part the number. Later that day, I was reading a feature about GPs in the iNewspaper. In a broadly sympathetic piece, there was a graph showing the decline in the number of GPs. Don't worry, I'm not going to show the graph. I'm going to talk about it. There are currently 27,558 full-time equivalent, fully qualified GPs in England. It's a bit hard to judge that number in isolation, but to give it a bit of context, it becomes quite concerning. Factoring an ageing population, an increase of 4 million new registered, newly registered patients since 2016, and a decline of 7% in the number of GPs over that period, and it isn't far short of a crisis. Then those mortgage brokers pop back into my head. 18,000 mortgage brokers and 27,000 GPs. Can we give that a bit more context? A little bit of what I'd call statistical gerrymandering later, and I had a proxy per head of population comparison for these two numbers that looks like this. There are 2,051 patients per GP in England, but only 444 people per mortgage broker. Calculating patients per GP is easy. England population divided by the number of GPs. People per mortgage broker is actually household with a mortgage per mortgage broker. There are 6.8 million properties in England with a mortgage. That gives you 444 mortgage properties per broker. Now, how often do you need to talk to a mortgage broker? Once every two or three years? Assuming 10% of homeowners need a broker at any time, and there are 37 households per broker. Talk about oversupply. The tempting but glib conclusion is that this comparison reflects our true priorities as a nation. We care more about houses than our health. The other way to look at these numbers is that they show a crisis in both health and housing. 
At a time when we should be switching more resources into primary care, there are they are steadily draining away as morale amongst GPs plunges. The proliferation of mortgage brokers is a symptom of just how hard it is for first-time buyers, especially, to get a mortgage. They need this ecosystem of advisors to navigate what should be a, an easy transaction. And there's lots of anecdotal evidence that estate agents are telling buyers their offer won't be accepted unless they use their recommended broker. In any normal market, high prices would encourage more supply. But in the UK's broken housing market, that signal just isn't working. This was the Still Navigating podcast. Everything you've heard today and a lot more is on stillnavigating.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.